So this morning, as Tim has said, we are beginning a series of sermons on doctrine, uh, which raises the question, why is doctrine important? Why take the time to go over the course of 16 months, once a month, but 16 months to cover doctrine, preach through a series on doctrine. I thought in order to illustrate this for us this morning, how vital doctrine is, and specifically the doctrine of the scriptures, I would begin with a bit of an illustration from history. Um, you're familiar with the story of a man named Martin Luther. Tradition has it that just over 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, Luther, um, who at that point was just a, a little-known priest uh, and university professor, uh, nailed a handwritten list of 95 theses, these controversial theological propositions, to the doors of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And what for Luther was an act most likely designed to elicit debate and correction in the Catholic Church was in retrospect the beginning of what would later be known as the Protestant Reformation. Now, whether Luther actually physically nailed the 95 Theses to the doors of the church or not, we're, we're not really sure about that. But what we do know is that these 95 Theses launched history in a different direction. Word of, of the theses spread quickly. Uh, they included uh, challenges to the Catholic Church's stance on things like repentance, on the power of the Pope to offer forgiveness, um, on the importance of what Luther called the treasure of the gospel, all around the subject of indulgences. It's fascinating to study the history there. We don't have time to go into all of it. Um, now, after Luther did this, the Catholic Church quickly turned against him, branded Luther as a heretic, urged Luther to recant his statements, uh, both the, the 95 Theses and also many of his other theological writings. Uh, some in the Catholic Church were even calling for Luther to be burned at the stake. That was the severity of the reaction. And so in January of 1521, so about four years later, um, he was excommunicated from the church. They excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church. And just a little bit later, mid-April of that year, he stood trial at the Diet of Worms, which sounds very appetizing to us, right? Um, but the Diet of, of Worms was an assembly of the political and religious authorities, it was a very serious council. Um, the, the political and religious authorities overseen by the Holy Roman Emperor, and there was the strong possibility um, that Luther would, in fact, be burned at the stake for what he had written. Luther was given the chance to save himself. All, all he had to do was recant these writings, um, recant his position, and all would be forgiven. And uh, as you have likely heard, Luther responded with these now famous words, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. 
So Luther, as a result of this, was, was branded as an outlaw. It was thought that likely this would result in Luther's execution. And so in an interesting twist in the story, as Luther makes his way home to Wittenberg, um, he was actually snatched in the dead of night. Some, you know, you know, media thought if you're Luther is probably all right. Now, now someone's come to kill me and, and just go ahead and, and finish this off. But it actually turned out that these were friendly men on horses who were sent by pr uh, Prince Frederick the Wise, who was a defender of Luther, and they hid him away. Um, in the Wartburg Castle near the town of Eisenach. And so there Luther spent nearly a year in hiding, and you may remember what he did during that time. He, he spent that year translating the New Testament from the Greek into his native German so that the common people would have the word of God. I share this story this morning because I think it illustrates for us the importance of a series like this and of a message like this in at least three ways. The first is that doctrine is easily corrupted and misshapen. Doctrine is easily corrupted and misshapen. The Catholic Church did not arrive at its conclusions, its theological conclusions overnight. Hundreds of years of cultural influence and, and power and theological missteps piled up to ultimately, as Luther saw it, undermine the gospel itself. And church, we are not immune to, to that kind of wandering. It, it happens on the scale of, of the Catholic church, but it also happens on the scale of individual churches and, and individual lives we tend naturally to drift away from pure doctrine. So doctrine is easily corrupted, easily misshapen. misshapen. But, but secondly, this story illustrates for us that the scriptures are the reliable foundation and the constant correction that we need for this kind of drift. Luther declared in, at the Diet of Worms, my conscience is captive to what? to the word of God. And so if we don't get this right, this foundational understanding of scripture, if it gets twisted or corrupted, everything else begins to fall apart. For Luther and the reformers, the doctrine that sprang forth from the correction of scripture inspired an entire revolution, not just some theological revolution, but there were wars fought and lives lost in defense of these doctrines. Thirdly, this story illustrates for us that pure doctrine is a treasure worth sacrificing everything for. Why would Luther risk everything? Why would he risk what would likely have been a very gruesome end for the sake of doctrine and for the sake of scripture, it was because he treasured the scriptures. He treasured the scriptures and understood that they were the words of life. So, church, what about us? As we begin this series, the theme of our service this morning has been the statement that we treasure the scriptures because they are the words of life. I hope that we can hold that idea up as a mirror for ourselves this morning. 
reflect on how the doctrine of Scripture should shape us, should shape our church, should shape our individual lives. And my prayer is that each of us, including myself, would truly treasure these words because of the beauty that we see in them. So this morning, we're considering the first of the doctrines that we hold to in our statement of faith as a church, the the foundation of all of the rest of them, the doctrine of the scriptures. And I want to do so by asking the following questions. First, what do we believe about the scriptures? Secondly, how does this doctrine get challenged, both from outside sources, but also internally? How does it get challenged? And then thirdly, how do we apply this doctrine faithfully to our church and to our individual lives? Because as as familiar as we are with the the beliefs that we're going to be covering this morning, I, I sense that they haven't penetrated us as deeply as they are. We need to hear them again, and we need to let that mirror reflect our own lives. So, To answer the first of these questions, what do we believe? Let me refer you to our bulletin this morning. You you have your bulletin there. Um, If you look at the back of the bulletin, there you have uh, the first article of our statement of faith. So if you are a member here, you have literally signed your name to this statement, right? You have said, I believe this. Your signature attests to your stated belief in these very carefully chosen words. And so let's look together at this first doctrinal statement. Um, I'm just going to read it for us. You follow along with me. Of the scriptures. This is from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, the, the confession that we have signed. We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired. And it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Now, church, we we don't have time this morning to pick apart this whole thing and address every bit of it. There's a lot here to think about. Um, These are carefully chosen words. There's a lot more than we can talk about in this statement, and there's a whole lot that I wish it said that we don't have time to get into. There's so much to say about the doctrine of the scriptures, and I'm going to do my best to go as quickly as I can um, to to work through some of the most important points here. Um, But So what I want us to do is I want us to approach it in this way. I want us to ask three questions. One is, where does scripture come from? Two is, is, what does scripture consist of? And third is what does scripture affect in us? As we answer what we believe, where does it come from? What what is it? And how does it affect us? Um, We're going to be looking at this from a number of places in scripture, but the primary text will be 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Um, You're very familiar with it, but go ahead and be 
turning there. That'll be our anchor point. We'll, we'll be jumping around to a number of different texts. You can try to follow along if you want to and, and flip to those passages, but, um, but it might be more helpful for you just to stick in 2 Timothy chapter 3 um, and, and just listen, whatever works best for you. All right, so first, where does Scripture come from? You're looking at me like, Zach, we, we know the answer to this. <laughs> where does Scripture come from? This is, this is simple, but it's vital. It's one of those things in, in the Christian life that's easy to say and really very difficult to grasp. Scripture, according to our statement of faith, was written by men, divinely inspired, and it has God for its author. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, just the very beginning of it, simply says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So, so what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that God is the source. God is the inspiration for, the power behind the scriptures. And we learn this not just from 2 Timothy, but this idea is reflected all over the Bible. The Bible self-attests its, uh, its source, its divine origin. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for example, says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 16, in speaking about David's words, says this. It says, The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. We see it applied not just to the Old Testament, but to the New Testament as well. In passages like where, where Peter sets Paul's words alongside the scriptures. In 2 Peter 3.16, one of my favorite uh, verses where uh, Peter kind of scratches his head at Paul, just like we do sometimes. Uh, he, he goes on to say there are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Isn't that interesting? But church, I think one of the most powerful testaments to the inspiration of scripture is the way that Jesus treated them. Jesus was constantly quoting from the scriptures, constantly describing them as the words of God, and constantly submitting to their authority, even to the point of giving his life as an act of obedience to the scriptures. Yes, obedience to God, but he specifically identifies obedience to the scriptures in his act of giving his life in Matthew 26. Uh, Matthew 26, 52 to 54, he's, he's faced with those who would arrest him in the garden. Um, one of his disciples pulls out his sword, right? You know, remember that? I'm going to defend you, Jesus. And Jesus tells him to put away his sword. He says, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So we believe that the scriptures are the very words of God. 
and that they carry with them his authority to command obedience and the weight of his holiness and his perfect designs. But as we've seen, it's not just that these words were written, uh, it's not that these words were written separate from men. We don't believe that God physically pinned the scriptures and then dropped them from heaven in our laps, right? Um, We know and and read and understand that uh, these words are incarnated through the minds and the personalities of men. The, The word of God through flesh, if you will. God has related to us through human vessels over generations, over all forms of human literature relating to us in ways that we can understand. And this is, this is vital for understanding the scriptures. He has sought not just proclamation from on high, but true and beautiful and complex communication with us. This is the foundation of our communion with God. We've been studying about that communion with God in all our small groups. And this word is his communion with us. So we believe that the Bible is written by men divinely inspired, that it has God for its author. But, but what are the scriptures exactly? What do they consist of? Our statement of faith helps us here as well. It, it says in short that the scripture is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. It has truth without any mixture of error for its matter, and it reveals the principles by which God will judge us. So to summarize that, it is sufficient, reliable, and authoritative instruction. Sufficient, reliable, and authoritative instruction. Look again at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, If we keep reading in verses 16 and 17, Paul continues his thought. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now notice the, the words that Paul uses here. Scripture, he says, is profitable enough so that the man of God may be able to get pretty far, ready to hear from the gurus, prepared to receive really special knowledge from somewhere else, right? No, no, he says complete. That's that's not lacking in everything. That's sufficiently informed and sufficiently instructed so that he is equipped for every good work. Church, the scriptures include everything that we need. The question is, do we believe that? Do we live like that? Listen, I'm not disparaging the glorious grace that is science and observation and and, and good, solid, common thinking. But how often do we rely on these things assuming that we don't need the corrective influence of Scripture. How often do we functionally assume 
that scripture is insufficient to guide us and instead look to the techniques of the modern gurus, the talking heads, the, the influencers, the experts, without regard to the teaching of scripture. What is it that ultimately guides our lives? What are the loudest voices in our heads? Paul makes it clear, Scripture makes it clear that nothing else is necessary. This book that that we hold in our hands, that we access on our phones, that we have with us everywhere we go, needs no further word, no theological key, no exterior superior knowledge. It's sufficient. It's reliable. And church, it's authoritative. These are God's words. We saw this in the way that Jesus submitted to them. We see it in places like Proverbs 30 that's highlighted in in that uh, doctrinal statement. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 say, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. That's a stark warning for us. There's there's nothing false in these words, and we don't trifle with them. We don't add to them thinking that we know something. Instead, we stand under the authority of Scripture and submit to it. Because it's not just information. It is instruction for us. Now, just to be clear, the, the Scriptures are not an instruction manual. It's not a list of of rules and doctrinal presuppositions, but the scriptures are a narrative that instructs. It's a narrative that, that patterns our lives, and it is full of instruction in specific and in general ways. And, and what this means is that they have an effect on us. So the scriptures are are not only from God and through men, they're not only sufficient, reliable, and authoritative, but they are effective. They are powerful. They work on us. Um, Paul Tripp addresses this, uh, this idea very well in his book, Do You Believe? He, He talks about the importance of doctrine. And this is what he says. He says their primary purpose is not information, but transformation. The informative function of the truths of Scripture is not the goal of those truths, but a necessary means to the goal of those truths, which is radical personal transformation. God's plan is that when the rain of biblical doctrine falls on us, it would change us. Not that we would become better renditions of ourselves, but that we would become spiritually different than we were before. And so our our statement of faith identifies at least four ways that the scriptures are effective in our lives. Um, Scripture has, it says, salvation for its end. It reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It is the true center of Christian union. And it's the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. And so we're going to, just very quickly, 
beginning with judgment. Scripture is effective in proclaiming just judgment. Scripture proclaims the law of God in order to judge us by its righteous standard. And so Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Scripture judges. It pronounces us guilty, and rightly so. But the good news, church, is that this judgment by which we are condemned leads to the second way that Scripture is effective in us. It brings us to salvation. Our statement of faith says that it has salvation as its end. Church, there is no possibility for salvation apart from the Word of God. Creation is a form of revelation, but it is not sufficient. Where creation can give us a general understanding of who God is, Scripture is the special revelation from God that we may know Him more deeply and come to Him for salvation. And so again, 2 Timothy, Paul addresses this in the verses just before what we've already read in verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, But as for you, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the witness of the gospel for salvation. This is where we learn of our guilt and our need for a Savior. This is where we learn of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Scripture has salvation for its end. All of Scripture could be described and has been described as salvation history. That is the the history of God's saving work in creation. And we are the beneficiaries of it. And this is its record. This is its witness. And so Scripture is effective for salvation. It it pronounces judgment. It's effective for salvation, but it doesn't stop there. It's effective in the way that it transforms our lives in, in the here and now. It results in our union as a church, and it guides our conduct as individual believers. And if I had time, we could spend a lot more time on that. We'll get to that a little bit more as we apply this later. So we've set up to this point some things that hopefully are fairly obvious to us, but maybe some necessary reminders. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and ask the question, what are some, what are some challenges? What are some things that threaten to undo these truths in our lives, in our hearts? There are, are many, of course. Um, we could speak about the belief systems of other faiths. We could talk about secularism that just outright denies the value of Scripture altogether. Um, We could talk about the sharing of authority and tradition in the Catholic Church and in other churches. Um, But I want to highlight just two that I think are particularly close for us, particularly dangerous for us, that we might be particularly susceptible to. One of them is more academic in nature. Another has more to do with our cultural narrative that we live in. So the first threat that I want to address is the threat of of what I'm I'm labeling here biblical criticism. It's it's a particular way of approaching Scripture. There are a lot of branches to it. It's it's complex. I'm not going to get into that. 
um, this morning. But what what it has in common is the attempt to and desire to study the scriptures scientifically. Now, this approach has actually yielded some good. Um, It's asked some questions. It's forced us to think uh, well about the scriptures. But the danger lies in a particular posture that's often taken towards scripture that divorces it from its divine origins, either explicitly or implicitly, either outright or saying, well, we think it's divine, but let's kind of let's put that aside and let's think about this critically. Right. Now, the the scholarly debates raised from these types of biblical criticism are probably not something that you encounter directly on a day to day basis. But I promise you that the effect of these debates is something you encounter constantly. This posture is something that has shaped the churches and threatens to shape our church. It's in the culture at large, and it is widespread in Christianity. What it simply is, is it's placing ourselves over the text. It's viewing it as though we have the authority to decide what is true and what is false. We prioritize our reason over Scripture's proclamation. So, church, hear me rightly. We are to bring our reason to the table when we, when we interpret Scripture. God has given us our reason in order to be able to understand him. But our reason does not carry authority over the scriptures. This is the posture of intellectual elitism, of of modern exceptionalism, where we think in modern times we just know better. We just know more, right? We've understood more deeply. And so some of the the more difficult or, or stranger passages of scripture, we just kind of Put, put them under the rug and say, you know, I'm going to prioritize my own understanding and logic. And so church, whether explicitly or not, we are often guilty of this. I am often guilty of this. Whenever we cho- choose to keep hold of certain portions of scripture and throw out others, uh, whenever we, we pit parts of scripture against each other, we're, we're trusting in our own reason over the word of God. Even when we simply do something like live our lives apart from the scriptures, trusting in our own understanding, we place our reason over scripture's instruction. We forget that sin not only corrupts the desires, but it corrupts the mind as well. And so our way of thinking is totally shaped apart from the way that Scripture thinks. But we've, we have to recognize the, the authority of Scripture over us and place ourselves beneath its dissecting gaze. I had a, a professor once who, who was is kind of a character, and, and he would come into class, and on the first day of class, he would climb up onto the table in, in the room in front of us and say, you know, we, we have a tendency to read Scripture this way, but we've got to, he would lay down, we've got to let Scripture read us. It made an impression on us. Hebrews 4, 
Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Scripture dissects us, not the other way around. So that's one of the threats that, that, that we see, but I think it may not be the biggest threat to our understanding of Scripture. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think Dr. Spinney would agree with me that one of the biggest threats to our understanding of Scripture is uh, what we know as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism threatens the doctrine of Scripture by placing my feelings and instincts and desires and intuitions. You'll recognize those from, from Dr. Spinney teaching us. My feelings, my instincts, my desires and intuitions above the authority of Scripture. Where biblical criticism denies the, the divine nature of Scripture with its scientific approach, expressive individualism denies Scripture's divine authority through its claim that only I can possibly know what's best for me. Only I truly know who I am. And the greatest good that I can do is live according to my most authentic self. We are steeped in that culture. But church, the problem is the Scriptures are full of statements declaring who you are. And, and it doesn't seem to care that much what you think about yourself. Scripture authoritatively declares a verdict about your deepest self. And it's not pretty. And so do we accept the authority of Scripture to tell us who we are? Do we trust its verdict and live according to its judgment of what is right? of what we deserve. Church, if we struggle with this, if we struggle to accept what Scripture has to say of us, how will we ever accept that not only does God declare us guilty, but in Christ, He declares us righteous? We have to accept the authority of Scripture, but the gospel has no power. When we allow this kind of approach into the church, um, maybe the kind of lower level effect of this is just a me-centric faith. That, that is to say that, that we threaten the authority and sufficiency of Scripture when we open the Bible looking, hear me, hear me clearly, when we open the Bible looking not to meet with God, but to meet with the authentic me. Do you ever do that? You ever open the Scriptures and say, what does this passage mean to me? How do I feel about this word? What are we doing? We're, we're making ourselves the center of the text. How often do we neglect the whole counsel of God for just rehashing our favorite feel-good passages? How often do we confuse application with meaning, making ourselves the central point of the biblical text? This me-centered approach undermines the ability of Scripture to do what we've already heard from Hebrews 4.12, to be the authority over us, to determine what we need to hear, to pierce our souls. And so our, our study of the Word is watered down by the culture that prioritizes the self. There are a lot of other threats 
to this doctrine, but we've got we've to keep moving. Um, church, this is not what we believe. We believe in the scriptures. And if all that we have studied here this morning is true, if the scriptures are from God, if they're complete and true and for our good, then we must treasure the scriptures because they are the words of life. Church, if this is true, then it means that the creator God of the universe has spoken. You know, he didn't have to do that. He has spoken, and not only has he spoken, he has spoken to us. Not in words primarily meant to condemn, but in order to communicate himself to us. His character, his plans, his work and power and church, he has communicated to us in order that we would know his saving work throughout history for us and for his church. It's incredible grace that the God of the universe desires that we know him. And his primary method of revealing himself is in these words, words of life, eternal life, yes, but also right here, right now, life. Paul Tripp says, when you get the word of God, you also get the God of the word. And that is a beautiful thing. Everything is is encapsulated sufficiently, perfectly, beautifully right here in this book, this narrative of God's salvation. And so these words of life are our treasure. They should shape everything we do. Tripp says that they are divine tools of salvation and transformation and identity and guidance. Very quickly, uh, I'm running out of time, but um, very quickly, how can we apply this in some very practical ways? How do we apply this in some very practical ways as a church and as individuals? Let me just give you three categories to think about that kind of align with, with how we think as a church. If these are the words of life, we should treasure them through word-centered worship, word-centered community, and word-centered mission. If these are the words of life, we should treasure them first through word-centered worship. As a church, we attempt to do this. That's why most of our preaching is expositional preaching. It's kind of ironic that, that here I am doing a, a doctrinal message, but I want to highlight the importance of expositional preaching. That is allowing the word to speak for itself as it was laid out for us, as it was handed down to us, because God in his authority knows better what we need. And so that's why we have a regular diet of working our way through the whole counsel of God. We do this in, in the songs that we sing. Did you know that the songs that we sing are not chosen for their, their beauty or their, their melody or how they make us feel? You may have noticed that here. <laughs> we sing songs that are rich with doctrine and theology and biblical truth. 
That's why our, our readings and prayers are shaped by Scripture. Every part of what we do on a Sunday morning is shaped by Scripture. But it's, it goes beyond worship on a Sunday morning. It goes into how we worship as individuals. That we are supposed to be a people of regular biblical devotion. Like how, how do we go through life without devoting ourselves to the words of life? Without treasuring these things and hearing from them regularly? I'm convicted by the thought that this also means that we need to be sharing the word together as a family, at home, with our kids, with our spouse. We should be worshiping around the word of God. It should just be our regular practice, our regular diet. So we treasure them through word-centered worship, but we also treasure it through word shaped community this looks like biblical discipleship some of the some of the best moments in my life have come from one-on-one bible reading just sitting down across the table from another believer and just reading the word together it's amazing what happens when you do that it it, it means that our community as a church is shaped by the word such that we practice biblical church membership and discipline. We, we, we take the implications of the word and we seek to apply them as faithfully as we can in the way that we practice membership, the way that we practice discipline. We stand under the authority of God's word. We allow it to shape our community of faith. And church, it, it also just enriches our friendships. As we seek biblical community, we talk about the word together. We encourage each other from the word. doesn't mean that we were necessarily quoting from scripture, though maybe we're doing that, but the, the encouragements of scripture are quick to come from our hearts and our mouths for one another. We declare truth to one another, and sometimes, we, yeah, we admonish one another from scripture as well. Because these are the words of life, and we treasure what they have to say. And church, if these are the words of life, we treasure them through word-empowered and exalting mission. What is it that informs your worldview? Is it scripture? Do we have a biblically informed worldview? Do we understand the world that we lived in based on scripture's authoritative witness? When we do, it, it, it shapes how we interact with the world around us. Bear witness. It means that we practice biblical evangelism where we proclaim the truth of God's word. Good, good deeds and good acts are, are, are necessary, but eventually we've got to get to the proclamation of Scripture, of the gospel. It means that even in the workplace, Our work is shaped by the scriptures. The wisdom of God shapes everything we do and we do all to the glory of God. And it means that as parents, we see ourselves on mission with the word of life in the lives of our kids. 
So as a, as a final word here, as I, I wrap this up, how, do, how does this work? You, you're like, okay, biblical this, biblical that, biblical this, biblical that. But, but, but Scripture doesn't have something to say about literally every situation and every instance and every moment. Um, I don't want you to, to come away discouraged saying, how do, I, how do I find this moment in Scripture? Um, again, I think Paul Tripp helps us here. He, he talks in his book um, about jazz, you think about jazz. Jazz is just a, a, a key and a rhythmic structure. And the players improvise. What makes it beautiful is the key and the rhythmic structure. And so, so in, this, in a similar way, Scripture gives us universal truths that underpin every practical reality. And so, this is what he says. He says, your Bible is not exhaustive in that it speaks about everything and gives you sheet music for every action, reaction, or response. It doesn't do that. But the biblical narrative with its law and gospel gives you a key and a rhythmic structure for your heart and your life. As long as you stay inside God's wise and lovingly revealed structure when you improvise, and you will need to, you will do so in beautiful harmony with him. He hasn't given you sheet music for every situation, but he has given you his law, his wisdom, his revelation of himself, his plan for the world, and his gospel to shape how you think and what you should desire in the situations and relationships of your daily life. And so church, let's walk in step with that rhythm. Let's play in that key. And as we treasure the word, we will find life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful that you have not left us to conjecture, to seek a knowledge of you apart from your intervention. We are weak and sinful and self-centered beings, but you have given us the words of life. You have offered us salvation in Christ. Help us to treasure these words, to walk according to their rhythm, that they would be such, such a familiar song, such a familiar key and rhythm that we would just find ourselves walking in step with you. Shape our church, shape our lives with word-centered community, mission, and worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.